Hello, everyone. Welcome to Kyle's Internal Monologue, the episode eight, I believe we're on. Uh, this is a very special episode. I am taking a quick break from uh, going episode by episode with Babylon 5, though you'll still get that later this week. Uh, I believe we're on the episode The War Prayer, which was written by the famed Star Trek writer DC, DC Fontana. Uh, but that's a good episode, but we'll get to that later. Uh, I actually have a guest on this, so I guess it's Kyle's external monologue, not an internal, but eh, whatever. Name stick. Branding. Uh, so, uh, on this week, I have Claudia, who is a personal friend of mine. I do, uh, this article series with her on a, uh, a website called The Daily Fan called The Witcher Retrospective, where we go book by book and soon to be, in like two months, the game, uh, game by game of the Witcher Saga. Uh, and uh, I've done a couple other podcasts with her. If you look up the Daily Bugle, uh, you can find like three episodes we were both on. Uh, and uh, she likes comics. Uh, I've had her review my previous comic that I released, All the World's a Stage, and uh, she's doing one on The Path to Choose to Walk, and it's going to be all fun and dandy. So she's doing an interview, uh, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. All right. Uh, I don't have as fancy an introduction, but <laughs> I'd love to just jump into the questions. Yeah. And first, I just want you to walk me through a little bit how you kind of first came to this idea, because this is something you've been talking to me about for honestly almost, I think, since we started talking, and it's been almost a year now. I don't know if you knew that, but yeah. um, I want to get, I want to, I want to start with something really broad. You know, how did you? start thinking of this idea what was the process to get this you know into writing and we will go from there and we're we're talking specifically about the path you choose to walk right yes only that one okay um i started development on that uh december-ish of last year 2018 like mid mid-december so um basically uh i had struck up a deal with flygore who's my artist uh, and originally the deal was for like two comics, uh, that I would act as his personal assistant because I have next to no money and can't really pay him anything. Uh, and, uh, basically I, uh, he, he had offered to draw my stories if I worked as an assistant and we agreed on one story, which was all the world's a stage. And then, uh, midway through, I was doing so much stuff for him. He was like, you know what, let's, let's extend this to two. And then now it's kind of become a permanent thing, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, where uh, he'll draw my stories. Uh, we already have another one that I have the script done, but he hasn't had time to start drawing it yet. Uh, it's called The Foundry, but we'll get to that later. Uh, and uh, basically, I was working on a couple of stories in my head. Um, and nothing was really intriguing me enough to go, yeah, I want to write that. And mm, let's see, that was December. So it was around Christmas time. It was like just like a week before Christmas. Um, I was really not in a great place, to be honest. I was really struggling. I had come back home from the UK now twice. Uh, I had been brought back home by my parents in June after graduating university. Uh, over in Winchester, the United Kingdom, and I had uh, left all my friends, and I didn't really have anybody here uh, that was really uh, that I was really connected to beyond my my immediate family. So I was kind of in a rut, 
And then I had went back in October for my official graduation, the actual ceremony. And uh, long story short, I end up getting an eye ulcer that almost caused me to lose my left eye. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen. I managed to get it under control, and uh, I'm on medication for the rest of my life for it. And so things were just kind of going downhill for me. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life because I wanted to be a comic book writer, but I had next to no idea what to do. Uh, and I was, I'm in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, uh, not really the best connected place for the industry. Uh, and I was trying to follow the advice I had gotten when I had done an interview with Greg Rucka, uh, back in, uh, like September when I went to Thought Bubble in Leeds, the United Kingdom. Uh, he told me, start out small, do short comics, release them out on the internet, go to cons, give them out to people, be a while, but someone may take notice. Uh, and I had done all the world's stage. And when we went to do the, uh, the next one, I was trying to think of what I wanted to do. And I had, and I messaged him and said, what sounds good to you to, uh, draw? Uh, and he was in the middle of doing, working on another client. Uh, and, uh, they were doing a noir story and my sort of bag is noir detective stuff. Uh, and I didn't want to have him repeat that. So he was like, uh, I was like, do you want something else in another genre? And he was like, I wouldn't mind some fantasy. It's like, okay. So I was trying to work out some fantasy ideas and I had one, but I just couldn't make it. The, the ending I wanted didn't work for what I was, for what I wanted to do. So I was just sitting there. I think I was in the shower and I remember getting like this random mind's image of this uh, woman walking in a snow in like this snowy area in this like snowstorm i was and as with all good ideas you kind of just play it out and i kept going why is she walking through the snow what is she doing there how did she get there who what when where why and how the classic questions and the more i developed that idea the better it got all right so i have sort of a few questions sort of surrounding the characters mm -hmm. and the inception of this idea but let's start with kind of the overall world building you kind of put down there uh there's a very interesting vibe to this story you've got mm -hmm. a lot of what feels like very almost native american inuit tribe sort mm -hmm. of art going on i don't know if that was a purposeful direction or just something that you fell into and i'd be interested to know once you kind of had this idea what kind of research went into building out everything else that was in there, their outfits, the culture, because there was hints of a culture there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a short comic, which means you have very little panel room to work with, but there was stuff there, and I could tell you thought about it. So mm -hmm. tell me a little bit more about that. Um, believe it or not, it's actually sh it was originally shorter. It was 10 pages. He had me elongated the four, actually, so, uh, to, to, uh, by four, so it goes to 14. Uh, but uh, the world building, I'm a discovery writer. Uh, and I, do you know what that term is? Because some people yes. do some people don't. Okay. For the general audience, that basically means I have next to no idea what I'm doing. I kind of make things up as I go along. Uh, I had a general idea of a ending I had in mind. Um, the, the way I tend to write is I tend to think of an ending and whether I actually get there or not is another thing. Uh, for instance, my newest piece, I had an ending that I never got to, uh, and I had to end it completely differently. Uh, so I, I have a general idea of the direction I want to go, but nothing, no details, nothing. 
I just kind of start writing and whatever the characters do, they do. Um, when I sat out to do fantasy, I kind of wanted to do something different, which is why the previous idea did not pan out, is I didn't want to do traditional medieval fantasy. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just, I was trying to figure out some other way to do it. And the the more I looked at it, the more I realized, what if I went with sort of a um, vaguely, vaguely tribal sort of uh, atmosphere to everything? What if I went sort of, I, I didn't, I didn't want to draw any particular parallels in the real life stuff because I wanted to avoid offending anyone. But I took huge inspiration from uh, just looking at uh, Native American stuff, uh, as you pointed out in Uit. Uh And there was also, um, th- there's actually a direct name pulled from it uh, of uh, very early Viking era Norway. Uh, and I just kind of looked at that sort of uh, taking a mixing, mixing, matching what I liked. Uh, and just sort of throwing things at the wall, pretty much. I was literally throwing darts at the wall and seeing what stuck. And I sent it to a couple of people, like, does this work? I I don't know because I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a Native American. I'm not Norwegian. I, I have a Norwegian friend, so I sent it to her. And I was like, uh, does this, does any of this kind of strike true, sort of a mix and match between Norwegian culture and Inuit and a couple of other things I was taking influence of? And she a-okayed it. Um, but I think it primarily came from, I'm a big hair person. Like I'm, I'm big on characters having particular kinds of looks to the hair on how that, what that says about their personality. Uh, and I was looking at various hairstyles for a D and D character I was working on. And I happened to come across, um, of sort of, Native American hairstyles, and I guess that was kind of influencing what I was thinking, because at the same time, I was also working on this. Uh, and by virtue of looking at stuff that had to do with that, it influenced what I was writing, most likely. For what it's worth, I could tell for sure that you were looking at more uh, European-style stuff as well, because mm-hmm. I've seen that in other places, and not to show my true stripes, but uh, you should definitely, I hope, if you didn't, you should definitely take a look at it. Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn yes. has this exact thing. A neat little fun fact about Horizon Zero Dawn. It is one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, I love Horizon Zero Dawn. Originally, Lanaya had red hair in the script. And then I went, oh shit, uh, they're gonna pe- people are going to start drawing parallels to Aloy. So I switched that immediately the moment I noticed. Uh, so yeah, the Horizon Zero Dawn is this weird thing where I, I love it to death and I wasn't thinking of it when I was writing it, but the moment I took a step back and then realized, wait a second, I have an archer character with red hair. So I kind of changed, uh, her hair to Raven, uh, to the Raven Black to avoid the Aloy parallel. But, uh, yes, I've looked at Horizon Zero Dawn. I love that game. No, and your love for it really shows in this, and I'm, I'm glad I wasn't off base of that assumption because mm-hmm. it was something that I was thinking about as I was reading through it. So the next thing I'm going to kind of point you towards is I want to start with sort of the mother character within this story because I yeah. think she was the most interesting to me. Okay. And I'm going to start by just letting you kind of explain it to me and then maybe from there pull in a few more questions. Okay. Um, well, Jenna... Uh, Jenna doesn't appear 
too much. I think it was like three or four pages, I think. Um, but uh, what, when I was writing it, I was sitting there and I kind of had this idea of let's do the reverse chosen one. Let's do someone who's like kind of cursed. And I was looking at chosen one tropes and I realized that a lot of the chosen oneness comes from um, the mother uh, in a lot of things. Like uh, I, at the same time I was, uh, I was uh, showing my dad deep space nine and we had just gotten to the reveal that Cisco's mother was actually a prophet and that had in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of weird. And I started looking like Pavetta for Siri because we were literally reading The Last Wish when I was writing this. So I had just gotten to uh, the, a matter of price, a question of price, excuse me. So Pavetta was on my mind. Uh, and I was looking at, uh, and of course, you bring up Horizon Zero Dawn, Elizabeth Sobek uh, for Aloy. And I was like, okay. Uh, so. I took I, I took the idea let's instead of having sort of a mother that disappears, um, let's have a mother that's always there, uh, and that she and I wanted Lanaya to have some sort of magic, so uh, I was like, what if magic is hereditary? Uh, so I made made sure that one of her parents had um, some sort of magic, and I had decided that one of the parents was going to be gone, but this time, instead of the mother in in the classic chosen one style, it was going to be the father. So then, uh, I was like, okay, so uh, Jenna's got to have magic, and then I started thinking, I, I love magic systems that have a price to them, uh, where uh, ma magic isn't all good and there isn't all bad either. The, there's there's a cost to using it. Uh, and I, I said, what if, he, thinking about it, what if a child born in something that, in, in like a, in, in basically, what if a child was born influenced by the magic that naturally flows through someone's, uh, so, so like a magician's body? How would that affect them? Um, and, I, and then, then from there, that's where I got to Lanaya's blindness. Um, but Jenna, I wanted to be, uh, as you know, I like, I gravitate towards positive parent figures. I wanted her to be the all supporting mother. Uh, and then I looked at sort of developing the idea of the tribe and, and how that was going to feed into, uh, the story of Lanaya. I wanted a very, uh, structured society that they had specific roles. Uh, and then what if someone who had a specific role and followed that role suddenly broke it. Uh, and that was where I got the idea of the, the quote unquote chosen oneness where you have, uh, we have Jenna uh, who uh, end up having a child with someone that she was not supposed to uh, and uh, then being sort of thrown out of society and then raising a child on her own. Uh, I thought that was I, I thought that was going to be an interesting uh, way to parallel Jenna and then her daughter, how they how their journey sort of intersects and parallels each other. Um, because I wanted w one thing I really wanted uh, it was a this is much more of a positive uh, positive work that I tend to uh, tend to write. I tend to uh, to quote one of my teachers. You tend to write very dark things. Uh, and 
because of the rut I was in, I wanted something that was positive. And because I have low self-esteem, I wanted someone who was very confident. So uh, from there, I, I looked at the characters and was like, how can, they par- how can the mother-daughter journey parallel each other? And if you look at the classic heroine's journey, of, uh, uh, which was the feminist rewrite of the hero's journey from the 70s, uh, was that it all had to do with a mother figure. And from there, I sort of extrapolated. So that was my thought process. Um, one of the things that's very interesting that you kind of said there is mm. that you created you created this very like traditional nurturing mother figure. And something that you see a lot is sort of, and I think the reason, if I might be so bold as to guess, mm-hmm. that a lot of mother figures in Chosen One stories disappear is because it is not the nurturing that makes the Chosen One, right? It's the blood. Mm-hmm. So the mother provides that, and then once that is provided, that character is no longer needed. And the reason you see a lot of male characters is because, well, oftentimes the chosen one is the chosen one in the sense that they are going to fight some great evil or overcome some great challenge. And so there is a male figure there to provide the traditionally masculine skills of survival or fighting or whatever. And mm-hmm. something you did in this story is you added a male voice to the mix, to teach uh, these skills. And I I wonder if you had thought about sort of the stereotype associated with that. And I know that, like, you kind of in this world made a cultural reason for that to be the case. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the mother was already a rebel. And I'm sure there's, even in any culture, there are subcultures and countercultures. So it it interested me to sort of see what you had been thinking when you kind of created that situation. Um, when I introduced Kieran, uh, it was more of a, I wanted, I, I wanted a sort of character that wasn't, that wasn't magic oriented. Uh, and, uh, c- cause the, my idea was, uh, was that you have two sides, you have the magic and then you have the non-magic. Uh, and what I wanted was in a, in a world in which you're you're a magician. Why would you have a skill like bowmanship? Why why would you, why would you need that? Uh, like if you can conjure lightning at will, why do you need to know how to use a sword? Uh, and so then I was like, well, I can't have Jenna teach her. Uh, and I wanted to show that this society, while structured, has people who do not agree that aren't just Jenna. Uh, and of course, the mysterious father that we never know the name of and disappeared and who knows what happened to him. Uh, and so I, I, I just started creating a character that was uh, sort of a stereotypical hunter, I suppose. I was just thinking of... Uh, because when I was sitting there and I was I was thinking about that she was hunting something, because back to when I kept seeing this oh, sort of uh, woman walking in the snow, and I was like, who, what, when, where, why, and how, the the why was she's hunting. Like, why is she, you know, and then from there, I was like, what is she, why is she hunting? And I wanted I wanted a character that, uh, that could teach her how to track and stuff. And from my own personal life, I come from a family that has some hunters in it. My grandfather, before he had a stroke a couple of years ago, uh, was a deer hunter. Uh, that was his thing. He would go out and he would hunt deer. And my uncle, who married into the family 
uh, he he hunts as well. So I kind of looked at them and I was like, okay, let's take let's take that sort of traditional hunter type person and let's give it to Lanaya and see what that what that does. And that's how Kieran came into place was just sort of having someone to teach her that. I think it worked very well, mm-hmm. um, but it is something that's very interesting to kind of look at because we've been talking a lot lately in our Witcher retrospective about the chosen one and to play of that trope with gender. Mm-hmm. Um, something I'd like to kind of drift towards here is why you tend to drift towards female characters. Like, why, why did she have to, What is it about female characters that makes you write them? Honestly, don't know. It was a... So, I never noticed, to be honest. When I was in uni, I think the first time I ever actually noticed that I started writing a lot of female characters, and and it's more like 90% of the time I write write female characters, I do have several male protagonists, and my dissertation was a dual protagonist story, uh, a guy and a girl, and, and... Though my dissertation supervisor noticed that the that that that, uh, trying to remember it was Elizabeth was her name. Uh, It's been a while since I done near over a year since I wrote that. Uh, If she uh, she had more page count than Benjamin, uh, my male dual protagonist. Uh, But I think the first time I noticed was I think in my second year, Uh, and this is actually connecting to the path you choose to walk is i took a class called uh the a myth dreams and creative writing in which we looked at writing from uh, carl Jung's uh uh archetypes and how that plays into writing and how uh legends and in in old old tales from uh greek mythology and so forth are basically being regurgitated all the time and how we can see all these parallels in different uh, in, in different works, and that's when we brought in uh, Joseph Campbell's The Heroes of a Thousand Faces, naturally, and The, uh, the Heroine's Journey, and we looked at, you know, things that follow it from uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods to uh, Star Wars to The Matrix. Yeah, we, we went all over the place with it. And at the end of it, we had to take, we either had to uh, fictionalize one of our dreams uh, or take a, take one of Carl Jung's archetypes and apply it to a story. And I'm I'm horrible at remembering dreams, so I was like, okay, I'm just going to take one of Carl Jung's archetypes. And I had on the side been personally working on a comic book sort of superhero universe in my head uh, because I'm that kind of person. I love comics, so naturally, of course, I as a writer, I'd be uh, working on my own stuff. And I had. I, I had a character that was supposed to be the first superhero, and the first arc of a uh, one of the main characters was trying to find out where she went because she disappeared for ten years. And uh, her name was Wonderstar, uh, Barbara Winters, and uh, basically she was the classic hero, uh, sort of chosen one narrative thing, which was part of Carl Jung's thing, and. I had made her to be my Superman. She was supposed to be like the the all optimistic, great, wonderful first superhero ever kind of thing. And when I wrote my uh, after I wrote the piece, you had the right irrationale explaining how you connected it to whatever the class was about. So it was 
Carl Young's archetypes, and I drew upon tons of stuff. I brought in All Star Superman and uh, an American Alien, and all, all 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 these superhero stuff, or specifically Superman stuff that I had loved, and I brought in some Wonder Woman as well, uh, specifically George Perez's run, and. I got my notes back and I got a really good grade on it. But the very first note my teacher had written on it is uh, her name was Amanda. She, she, she very first note she went is you didn't talk at all about the fact that she was a woman and you were comparing her to Superman. Uh, why didn't you bring gender into this? To be honest, it never crossed my mind. Uh, so I think that was the first time I started taking notice of the fact that I was writing a lot of female characters because to me, it never, it, I never noticed. And I believe that. I do. Yeah. Uh, don't worry. I, I've <laughs> definitely felt the same way in a lot of cases. And something I've noticed is that it's as you get older that people start drawing these distinctions and feeling the need to point out when something is male or female. Mm. When you're younger and you're growing up in all this media, that, that thing is not pointed out as frequently. Uh, mm. And you just sort of, if, especially in your case, I think, when you're writing, you will not realize that anything is peculiar until someone on the outside says it is. Mm. And I kind of, I, when, I, when, he, when it was pointed out to me, like you said, it's not something I ever thought of. I kind of looked at my own stuff and I realized, uh, to quote one of my favorite writers, Denny O'Neill, uh, he said in an interview once that uh, all great writers start out copying. Uh, that they copy what whatever writer that they it's not even just the one that they most admire it's one that they've read a lot and it, their writing speaks to them on some sort of level uh, and he he was like I started out imitating Stan Lee you know he's like I'm not ashamed to say that I was doing that uh, and for me it's Greg Rucka uh, and uh, Greg Rucka's characters tend to be female characters. And that's when I started going, oh, that's what I'm doing. Uh, but I never really, e e after, after like maybe 10 minutes of thinking of it, it just kind of left my mind. I didn't really think about it after that. Uh, then the next time I noticed was about two months before I write this, I spend a month back in the UK uh, to go to Thought Bubble. I interviewed Greg Rucka, and then I stayed with a friend of mine uh for like a month and then i had graduation and then i came back to oklahoma in the time that i was there uh we spent a lot of time watching tv and stuff and uh we had met through comic book society but we had never shown each other like things that we were like personally attached to outside of comics so he he started showing me stuff like the x-files which i had never seen and uh i didn't really connect to the x-files all that much uh it was too scary for me I don't do horror well. Uh, so he showed me a uh, spinoff of, of the X-Files called The Lone Gunman. Uh, and uh, it was short-lived, I think like 13, 15 episodes. Uh, it didn't last very long. It was, a, and it was, of course, a spinoff following, of course, The Lone Gunman from the X-Files series. Uh, and it, uh, it, it had a more comedic tone. It was not scary. Uh, and they had a character that he was like, I guarantee you're going to love this character. And I went, okay, can you explain that to me? Why would I, why would I like this character? And he went, well, there's this character called Eve who is, uh, uh, who's like this really badass smart hacker chick and you're going to love her. And I went, how do you know this? And he went, 
have you not noticed that all your favorite characters like the badass chicks? And I went, no, I never noticed. And that's that's the moment I think it finally clicked for me where I went, oh, I'm just, I'm trying to basically trying to create fa my favorite characters again, basically, mm -hmm. where I'm, I'm taking characters, traits from characters that I like and sort of applying that. So naturally they turn into women. It's not conscious, I think. Uh, I think now, because I'm aware of it, I think I've become more conscious of it. Uh, there was a point where all my protagonists were redheads for at one point, and I think I became very self-conscious about that and started changing that. Um, but it's it's not something I ever noticed. It's just something that's always been there. And I happen to gravitate towards a lot of female characters, I think, as you've noticed. Uh, so it was just... It's sort of happy accident, I suppose. It's not something I ever really connected to until it was brought up to me. Interesting. So mm -hmm. when you were writing this, was there sort of a main message you wanted to get across? Because you've talked about a couple of things. We brought up parent and society and living outside of society and a societal expectations and roles came up a lot, but mm -hmm. also destiny and chosen ones. Like basically there's a lot going on here. So it's very hard to kind of nail down sort of a central meaning to mm. this. And to be fair, I am a huge proponent of not everything necessarily needing a meaning in the most mm -hmm. traditional sense. But I also figured as the writer, you would be the most informed as to where you really wanted to focus sort of the attention in this story. That might not have been the best way to say it, but I think you <laughs> grasped my meaning there. Yes. Um, so... Because I'm a discovery writer, a lot of things kind of ha just happen. I am experiencing the story at the same time I'm writing it. Uh, so I had no central theme or idea. Uh, it just came out naturally. Uh, so when I started playing with the idea of I wanted to do an opposite chosen one, the idea of destiny and stuff like that started propping up. And as I was writing, I was noticing... Because uh, I wrote it over the span of two days. I was noticing uh, a lot of this uh, idea of labels and being stuck in a role. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't know where that came from. That just sort of came out as I was writing it. And I, as in my edits, I extrapolated that and kind of made that the central point, making that her final line. Uh, and it became... It became more about breaking out of roles, which is where the title comes from, The Path You Choose to Walk, the entire idea that you choose your own path. You can't you can't be segmented to one section of like one path. You you it cannot be chosen for you. Uh you have to choose. Uh and I that all came out, I think it's probably a a statement of where my mind was at at the time, to be honest. Because like I said, I was in a rut at the time. I didn't know where I was going. I I was having problems because I didn't I didn't have anybody here in Oklahoma that I could really connect to, uh, and uh, so I, I and all my friends were six hours uh, you know six hour time zone difference in another country, uh, and I I wasn't living with them anymore. So I was kind of in this sort of rut of I don't know where I'm going, and I'm I'm still in that rut a little bit right now, but uh, I've gotten a lot better. But I think that was feeding into it of I honestly had no idea where I was going. And so uh, in, in breaking out of roles 
of uh, I was I came back and a lot of people because uh, a lot of people of my family who had no idea what I had been through for three years in the UK kind of assumed I would naturally assume the role that I had when before I left. I was a very different person than uh, than before I left uh, before I left than when I came back. I changed a lot. So I was stuck in a rut of people assuming things about me that were no longer true. Uh, and I also had like six months prior, uh, had, uh, before I left the UK had been stereotyped at one point. Uh, and I think, and that had bothered me and it, it still kind of bothers me. Uh, so it had kind of stuck in my head, I guess, of, I, I we've never physically met in person, but you've seen pictures of me. You know that I wear a fedora and I'm kind of overweight. And there's a negative stigma on the internet about people that happen to look like me right now. And it has been for like a good year. And I remember being stereotyped at one point as one of those people, uh, just because I wore a hat. And the story of me wearing the hat is much more personal to me and about my grandmother and connects to my low self-esteem and how uh, it makes me think of Vic Sage, who is a very confident character. So it's sort of me putting on, it's almost me putting on a mask kind of thing where it helps me uh, engage with people. Uh, so I had been stereotyped and that had upset me. And then just where I was at my life, I think kind of all fed into this idea of breaking free from traditions and roles and making your own way through life. I think that's where, I think that's the central theme of the path you choose to walk. Like I said, it all came organically to me. It was not a conscious decision. Uh, it was very much, I want to play with chosen one narratives. Uh, and so I started working on that and then the characters told me what they did. And then, that's that's how things came to be no that's a i'm very sorry that people are mean basically <laughs> but yeah that's a very it's a very good place to kind of drive that st derive that story from and it gives a lot more weight mm -hmm. to some of what takes place than i think i personally would have just felt on a initial read because my next question was kind of going to go into sort of you know this story is very tropey it pulls from a lot of stereotypes it's very obviously mm -hmm. daredevil it's very obviously horizon zero dawn the dialogue is very what was the last end the blind girl sees um and so i kind of wanted to sort of you know from your perspective where do you go when you're thinking about what you want to write and the impression you want to leave behind and how how much do you push yourself towards sort of telling these stories that are kind of the stories you wanted to read when you were growing up? And how much do you want to deviate from these? To quote Neil Gaiman, when I write, uh, it, it, I, it, I don't assume an audience. I assume the audience consists of one person, and that is me. Uh, and uh, that's where, in the worst case scenario, at least one person enjoyed it. Uh, so... I was just writing a fantasy story that appealed to me uh, as far as the, the sort of taking from other things. And I, I, like I said, I am very, it was very subconscious. Like I said, because I'm a discovery writer, it just kind of comes out. I don't know how it gets on the page. It just happens. Uh, it sounds very chaotic, but it's the way I do things. Uh, and I've gotten good grades when I was at uni and everybody tells me I do good work, even though I personally think I'm 
not all that great, but that's self-confidence issues of uh, just sitting there and writing and therefore naturally things that I like come out in the work. Um, I mean, uh, to bring up my dissertation again, once again, you you uh, haven't read it, so you, you wouldn't know what it's about. But those who I gave it to uh, and who read it went, this is a rewrite of one of your favorite arcs from the question. And I didn't even notice. It was it was about a it was about an election for a mayor, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't even notice I was doing the Myra Furman for mayor arc," uh, and uh, and so I had to go in and change things because it was sort of just there. Um, and then uh, a lot of my early work, especially, was uh, very very uh, Raymond Chandler esque. I was uh, I was trying to borrow heavy from the noir greats, and I, I I think then it was more conscious because when you're when you're starting out as a writer, you you steal, as Daniela said, you you copy. Uh, so I was naturally pulling from things that I liked. Uh, as far as on this, I don't think anything of it was conscious. I think the the blind aspect, I guess, can be drawn to Daredevil, but. I've seen other characters that have, were blind and uh, and have seen through other means. Like that's like a very common trope in a lot of things. Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess the, I guess there's the Daredevil aspect, and there's definitely the Horizon Zero Dawn aspect, uh, which was completely incidental. And I did notice myself after I was done. Uh, like I mentioned, I changed her hair from red to black to go. Oh crap! I don't want to draw any accidental uh, parallels that were not intended. Um, so I don't know, to be honest, where, where that comes from. I guess, I guess because I'm pulling, because it's, it's sort of stream of consciousness and it's all coming from my head, things sort of, sort of things that I really love kind of congeal. And, and I think you can see the influence of things I was reading at the time. Cause um, I think not long before we had like a few weeks prior to me writing that we had done our daredevil uh daily bugle episode uh with sharika and alec so that sort of was in my head i guess and uh then of course i was reading the last wish in prep for our very first uh witcher retrospective uh so that was also in my head and uh then then i had played horizon zero dawn only like what four or five months prior so that was in my head you you pull from real life uh and a lot of times what i'm because one of the ways i used to uh discovery write was i would just create dialogue in my head while i was walking to and from class and i would pull from my environment randomly i noticed like i oh my entire idea for my dissertation uh, that came a year before I ever had to write it was I was walking through my neighborhood and I saw a guy clearing out his garage and he had like one of those old style cameras, uh, like the ones with like the light bulb and the, the lens thing, you know, the really the stuff from the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there like, why does he have that old camera? And then it, 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 it like in my head, I thought, what if technology from that time frame kind of continued to nowadays and that's how i got my dissertation which was uh which was a noir story set in a world that has been uh, set in a city that has been walled off from the rest of society and they've sort of stagnated so they're stuck in the 40s 
but it's 2019. Uh, or, well, at the time I was writing, it was 2016. But, uh, and then when I turned it in, it was like 20, 2018. But uh, I had was writing it for years before I ever had to turn it in. Uh, so I think that, I think it's just natural. I pull from things, I, and every writer does this. I mean, Stephen King says this, of good writers steal. Uh, and they steal voraciously. So uh, I was just pulling from things that was in my head at the time. I think that's where it all came from. So talk to me a little bit about, in terms of the story, what do you feel was the weakest part of it? And if you could go back, what would you change? And if this isn't a question you'd normally answer, like if you're one of those people who goes, no, it's done, we're not thinking about it anymore, then by all means, be done with it. Mm -hmm. But I'd be really interested to see um, where you kind of start poking holes in your own work. Um, for me, uh, I, I took a step back from it for a little bit to, uh, cause one of the, one of the things you should be doing is you should take like a good couple weeks to a month from your work so you can come back with fresh eyes. And I'd sent it off to a couple people, uh, to get some edits and I got some edits in and I changed some stuff. Uh, one, I, I think when I was, what I was scared about was the non-linear nature of of it, where we're constantly doing flashbacks and stuff. I felt that was maybe a bit too gimmicky, because uh, I'd seen it done a thousand times, and I wasn't sure if it would work, and I didn't want to go linear with it, because then that takes away from a good opening, and I wanted an atmospheric opening. Uh, so I, I didn't know how I would do that. And then when I came up with the idea of doing the captions as dialogue in both past and present, um, that became a entire technical nightmare that I kind of wish I hadn't done uh, because my artist, his specialty is black and white comics. And we had discussed to keep the price down that I had to work back to not go color. Uh, even though initially the idea was this was going to be in color, I didn't want to hike up the price too much. And, that, and of course, I'd never want to take advantage of him. That's one thing I've always stressed is, is like, uh, I will do whatever you need me to do as your assistant, answering emails and whatnot. But I'm not, I'd never want to take advantage of you. So if you think I'm doing too little for you doing too much, tell me uh, and I will try and work it back. Uh, and so the color was going to add more time and I didn't want to do that to him. So uh, it became can we change fonts? And he was like, I don't like, I don't like changing fonts. He kind of looks odd. And I was pulling from Batman year one. And once you have the captions from Jim Gordon and then the captions from Bruce Wayne and how they're in different fonts. And I really like that look, but he was like, you have more than two characters talking. That's going to, that's going to start being a, a literal font nightmare and going to look awful. Uh, so it became us discussing if we had color it would look, it, we could just color it differently. And then at the end, everybody could kind of get a gist of what it was going for. And over time, as we were discussing it, we thought about legitimately restructuring it to go to a more linear nature. And then he was like, what if I created logos uh, for each character? Uh, and then we could copy paste the logos onto the captions. And that's where everybody can kind of get a gist of who's talking and which one. Uh, but that was like several months of trying to figure things out, trial and error. We tried a couple of things. We actually have several iterations 
of the uh, of the icons of each character. Of uh, this was too much of a headache. No, we got to scrap that. So it was kind of a technical nightmare. So I kind of wish I hadn't done that. Um, because I'm by nature of what I read. I, I was once called a comic book hipster. And I looked at the person and said, I hardly ever read anything outside of DC and Marvel with a, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, so I can't really be a hipster of comics because I read mainstream. Uh, so, and I was thinking in big budget, big two uh, comics is what I was thinking. Cause, uh, and I realized I'm making indie comics. I have to adapt. Uh, and I had not at that point anyway, adapted fully to what I was doing. Uh, and that just became a logistic and technical nightmare that, like I said, I wish I hadn't done, but I do think works relatively all right. Um, now, as far as more of a writing level rather than a technical level, um, I kind of wish, um, the, the, those times where the dialogue kind of feels stilted to me, uh, and, uh, that, that annoys me, but I also don't know how I would restructure it. Uh, because I have so few pages, you know, I don't have the luxury of this being a multi-issue spanning thing, and I don't have the luxury of a full 22 pages. Um, I have to get things done and done quickly and the shortest amount of time. Uh, so sometimes that leads to narrative cheats. And uh, I think uh, at some points that kind of harmed the writing, uh, specifically the dialogue. Um, but I think overall it came out pretty all right. And I think it's one of my stronger pieces. Um, the way, the way I see my writing is I'm always trying to improve. And as long as I improve on one aspect, I'm happy. Uh, and this was my attempt to do, uh, something that was a bit out of my comfort zone. It was fantasy, which I've only written one other fantasy story before. And I didn't think it really turned out well. And it was a bit more of, it had a positive ending. Uh, it was a bit more optimistic about things. So it was really me trying to be out of my comfort zone. So I think I accomplished that. But I do think there was, there was some uphill battles that I think I could have done better. Thank you. That was actually very informative. And for what it's worth, the scenes we had where it was a panel and then the dialogue between multiple characters with the logos, I loved that. It took me about mm -hmm. five seconds to figure out what was going on. And then really quickly, those little symbols became very, um, those symbols became symbolic is a really lame thing to say, but they became mm -hmm. very informative of mm -hmm. the character and of what was going on. I actually really, I thought it was a very nice touch and knowing the technical challenges you were facing, that creative decision adds a little bit more to it. Um, and personally, mm -hmm. I am a fan of nonlinear sort of, not, not nonlinear storytelling in general, but sort of nonlinear. There was something very nice. There was an element of professionalism to the way those scenes were handled that I, I definitely mm -hmm. took note of when I was going through my first reading. Um, mm. I guess, I'm trying to think. I, I, those are a lot of the major things I wanted to kind of hear you talk about, and I've got a lot of information out of you at this point. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any questions for me as your reader? Um. Well, um, just kind of, did you... Did you enjoy it? Was there anything that uh, stuck out to you? And was there anything that you just didn't like? I enjoyed this. I'm going to be honest. I think I enjoyed All the Worlds of Stage more. I think from mm -hmm. a writing perspective, it was a lot tighter. 
Um, but uh, I like I said, the little scene with the symbols on the dialogue that sort of gave you this impression of passing time and the background, all of that, that was very well done. I liked that part of the story, even if that was something that you felt was kind of a technical nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely thought that there were moments where the dialogue was a little weak, but I also feel like I need to take into account that this is, it's hard to explain, but there's an element of like, this is the type of story this is. This is a fantasy comic that is telling a very specific type of story. And it wasn't something where I could point at it and really justifiably go, well, that's not how it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had... I had a very good time with it. Um, I think I'm going to enjoy sitting down and kind of picking things apart for you. If you mm-hmm. want a more in-depth critique, we can always do that some other time, but I'm not going to do that here. We're <laughs> to be right this second. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought the art was really well done. I could definitely tell, though, that you were pushing your artist outside of the bounds of his comfort zone because all mm-hmm. the world's a stage had a very, was just very well drawn all the way Mm. through and there were moments in this one where I was like okay this artist is struggling a little bit with these particular scenes but that's more of a critique on the art and not so much a critique on you but it was really cool to hear that you know oh you know noir is your thing and noir is what he was drawing and he was like let's try fantasy because that says a lot about Mm. how he was stretching his skills in particular for this. Speaking of Flagler it's worth noting that in January, uh, when he started drawing, he came to me and he was like, I kind of want to experiment with my style. Um, and you can notice it in the fight scenes, if you're familiar. He had gone, I don't remember what it was. He had just finished reading an indie comic published through Image by the artist known as Jock, uh, the British artist. I am assume you're familiar with him. I am not. I actually don't read indie comics. Well, he's, he's done mainstream. He did uh, Green Arrow Year One. I think I've read that. That sounds like something I'd have read. He did The Losers for Vertigo. Uh, may it rest in peace. Um, but yeah, that uh, that artist, he had been really influenced by his style in this indie comic. And he was like, I kind of want to uh, try and see if I can uh, stretch my style to do that. It was a lot more kinetic. Um, and you can see that in the, uh, in the fight scene with the manticore of his influence, especially taking with that. Um, and it's also worth noting that he did co- uh, come clean and say, I really struggled with this. When I when you get to the bonfire scene with uh, the Elder and Hakan and everybody there, uh, he was not accustomed to drawing crowds. And I called for a densely populated area. And uh, I was like, there's going to be tons of people in every shot. And he was like, okay, I'm going to really struggle with this. Uh, and uh, And I think it turned out really well. Uh, but he, and I, I even told him I'm so sorry about that. Uh, I'll, in my next piece, I'll make sure not to have as many people. Uh, and he was like, "Oh no, 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 it's fine." He was like, "Let me stretch a little," but I did struggle a little with it. Um, but uh, in speaking, and also to the 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 tighter narrative in all the worlds of stage, it's worth noting that all the worlds of stage was written originally as a competition piece. I, I know you did a review of it, but I don't think I ever told you the story behind that piece. Um, that basically I was going to Thought Bubble uh, in Leeds specifically to uh, do the competition to get a short story made in 2000 AD, uh, one of the most famous British comics. Uh, I'm, I don't know if you've read anything, but Judge Dredd comes from them. I have not, but I know who you're talking about. 
Yes, and the little fun fact, I met the co-creator of Judge Dredd and the co-creator of 2000 AD as a whole. He came and did a talk at my university. His name was Pat Mills. He was great. I even have a picture with him. Uh, but uh, when I went there, I had, uh, because their, the, their future shocks are four pages, I had to write a narrative in four pages, and I kept, and I had this entire idea, uh, and it was kind of bombastic and crazy about a, a planet that can mind control you. And it was started out really big, and then I started reiterating down, 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 down until I got to four pages. Uh, and that's why it's that's why it's uh, very tight is because I had so little page count. I had set a page count of ten pages for the path you choose to walk for myself. And I managed to get it done in 10 pages. And then he was like, well, we're going to have some room to breathe because there was a couple of places that were very dense uh, with dialogue and like 10 panel pages. And uh, it was just insane. And it's kind of stuff you only see in older comics, which is what I tend to read anyway. Uh, and you can definitely see that style where my, my pages are very dense with a lot of panels uh, by virtue of reading a lot of older comics where that was more of a thing than it is nowadays. Uh, and he was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta let this breathe a little. So he elongated it by four pages. So, um, by virtue of the, of all the world of stage being written under competition rules, uh, which I never, speaking of which, I never actually got to pitch to them. I was in line and they end up rapping after two hours and I, my, my segment of the line wasn't even gotten to, uh, I was given the business card of one of their editors and was told that if I put in the subject line that I was in line to do the pitch at Thought Bubble, they would expedite it and put it at the top of the review pile. And I got I got a, a editor who thought it was okay, but I didn't really grab him, so he just turned it down, uh, which was fine, whatever. But that's feedback. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so I and when I had approached Flygor, I was like, hey, I already have this this done you want to draw it it's short four pages and that's and that's how our deal got started but by virtue of it only being four pages and under uh competition rules it was naturally tighter because i didn't have the freedom to do what i uh because i naturally tend to go a lot longer infamously in all my st stories for uni almost all of them either went just above the word count and i had to get special permission uh, to uh, to get it okay to go through and turn in, because they would always give us a word count, or in my case, a panel count when I was writing comics. Or it was I reached the panel count and I had a lot more of the story to get to, so I had to write a synopsis at the end of this is where I'm going, uh, which is very annoying for a discovery writer because I'm like I have a very vague idea of where I'm going. I'm kind of making this up as I go along. Um, so I naturally tend to write a lot longer stuff. Uh, and the short and the point of the short comics, as Greg Rucker mentioned, was uh, to, the only way to prove you can do comics is to make comics. Uh, and he's like, a lot of people nowadays, they make short ones like four, eight, ten pages. Uh, and that and you show those to editors and editor because writing short is much harder than writing long. Um, because in longer pieces, you have more room to breathe, you can go on more tangents, and that results in a more free-flow story. In, in short fiction, every word matters, uh, and you can't have tangents. You can't have superfluous scenes that don't really matter much beyond character development. You have to make sure every word matters. Uh, in the comics book's case, every panel matters. Uh, so it, it was... It, 
so that's why that feels a lot tighter than that is because I did end I even though I set a panel count, I end up breaking it in the course of revision uh, with the path you choose to walk. Whereas all the world's a stage was a four pager was in it was in was envisioned to always be four pages and ended as a four pager. I think you definitely benefited from setting from having those sort of tight limits put on you. So I, I would love to see more of that in the future. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was my overall impression. I don't really have anything else for us today. I mean, short comic, uh, but I feel like you gave me a lot of really good details here. Uh, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad for some of this insight. It'll make writing the review much easier. And I used your script last time because it made it much yes. easier to pull quotes out as well and mm-hmm. to kind of get, because there were some details that I was able to then pick up by reading your script, going back into art and matching it up, being like, oh, I see this like tiny mm-hmm. detail that I missed on my first read through. And I know I shared you the script. I don't know if you've read it yet. You did. I've I've been right now just working off of the comic. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a note in there. I I debated about eliminating it so that you could just read it straight through. But there's actually a note from Flygore to me. And then what on one of my revisions, you can't see the old uh, the old revision because it's like from seven months ago. But you can see where my thought process was. There's actually a change in one of the character designs to uh, from a thought I had very late in the game development. Um, uh, where Lanaya has a braid to begin with, and her hair is slowly freed up as the story moves on. Uh, you know, of course, in non-linear fashion, but you you see over time that it's a braid, and then it's not. Originally, the I had like a two-year jump between the flashbacks at one point, and he was like, "I can't, I can't draw a, a someone who." has aged very little. You know, uh, fourteen to sixteen isn't too much of a jump." Uh, so how do I draw that? So I was like, uh, so I thought about how to visualize it. And that's where I came up with the braid idea. And then I inserted it later earlier in the script to show that it was sort of a, it was a physical representation of her breaking against the roles. So you'll see that note in there. And I, I left that there for you since I figured you would draw a lot from that. No, I actually really appreciate that those little things because I always will read the comic first without outside anything. To me, that's like yeah. the most, not the most important, but it gives me more honesty, honestly, because like I, all of these thoughts have been super helpful. It's given me a lot of insight, but at the end of the day, anyone else's impression of your comic is going to be what they read when they first open it. Mm. And I want to be able to have that experience. And then after that, it doesn't matter what background details you give me because you can give me all these sorts of little things and they can, they, they will help and it will be very interesting. And I also have the freedom now because I've already gotten my first impression, right? I've mm. done my read through. I've seen my first like glimpse. I don't have to worry now about anything you say, coloring, how I'm going to go through the story. So I like having all these extra details and little crunchy bits afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I'll send you probably the because uh, he had me create like a mood board kind of thing in Pinterest for him of like general look of characters and stuff. And I and because I'm me and I I took a lot of reference material like a lot of drawn stuff and like here this is kind of what I'm going for. But I also attach like specific actors and actresses to characters of going. This is vaguely what they look like. I, you can go as far or as, as as much into that look or not as you want. But this is the vague idea of what they're supposed to look like. Uh, like, for instance, uh, you mentioned that the mother Jenna was your uh, was uh, was the one that you most glommed onto. Uh, in my head, I pictured her as Ke- uh, the actress Catriona Belfi, 
who, if you don't are not familiar with her, that is a, that is Claire from Outlander. If you watch that show, um, and I had uh, me and my mom watched that show, so in, in my head I sort of associated that actress with motherhood, and therefore, uh, and plus the arc in the current in that point in the show is quite literally about motherhood. So, it, uh, so it kind of connected to me. And that's why I had the the idea that she looked like Catherine Belfi, but he did kind of he drew from that, but then went his own way. Uh, so you'll see a lot of like iteration and stuff. Uh, if you notice, there was a third person mentioned in the credits, uh, Sean Hummel, uh, who came in about one or two pages in to uh, into uh, us working on uh, on the path you choose to walk. He's a three D artist. Uh, because my artist uh, Flygor works heavily off reference material, which is why I, I create mood boards for him for like everything, um, uh, like reference material, uh, general look of things and whatnot. Uh, and the 3D artist kind of took what we did in the mood boards and uh, applied that and, and and visualized that for Flygor to then draw from. Uh, there's actually a change in the script. I mentioned that she's uh, in the fight, the ending end of the fight with the Manticore. She slides underneath the Manticore, scrapes it with her arrows, and then uh, and then comes up. And I, I think I don't remember the, the in the original wording of the script before revised was. Uh, Lanaya is covered in blood. She looks badass. The end. You know, kind of thing. And uh, and I I kind of embellished upon that as I revised. Uh, and he, uh, the 3D artist kind of interpreted that and made it like the, the, the superhero landing, the quote Deadpool. And, uh, and it, me and, uh, me and Flagger were talking about it and we're like, that kind of actually looks cooler than I originally had in my head. Cause originally she's supposed to just be standing, uh, and it's, it's supposed to be like this big heroic moment. And he, he was like, what if we do like the superhero pose? Wouldn't that look cooler? I was like, yeah, that kind of does look cooler. Uh, so you'll, you'll see some of that iteration as things changed uh, and whatnot. That's super cool. I think that's everything, then, that I have for you today. Is there anything okay. else you'd like to talk about before we quietly no. close out? Yeah? N not that I can think of. All right. Cool. Okay. Th thank you all for joining us. Uh, hope you enjoyed uh, that sort of insight into my creative process and uh i originally my plan was to record this by myself but then i thought i record all episodes of girls internal monologue by myself and i kind of feel like they're boring because uh, it's just me talking at nothing about babylon 5 for a, uh, for like 30 minutes at a time uh sometimes less and i i feel like that kind of gets boring so i wanted to bring someone in uh and uh Claudia kind of knows uh, s a certain uh, aspects about my creative process through lens of us re looking at The Witcher, uh, and she had reviewed the previous one, so she kind of seemed like the the go-to candidate. Uh, so I asked her, and she was more than willing to do it. So hope you enjoyed that. Kinda, hope it kind of made it a bit more interesting having an actual interviewer who could interact and ask questions that probably I wouldn't have even thought about asking myself. Uh, this probably would have been done in like 15 minutes if I was doing it by myself. Uh, so uh, thank you again for joining me and uh, have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye, Kyle.